Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, help us to hear your word with clarity. Send your spirit among us so that we might respond in faithful obedience. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. People of God, if the book of Ephesians is about anything, it's about salvation. You don't have to look very far in our world to realize that the world needs salvation. Destruction and self-destruction are everywhere you turn. Flip on the news, you'll see the unfolding of human hatred and bigotry, selfishness and shame, violence and violence begetting more violence. You find people so filled with despair and hopelessness and rage that it's almost a daily event now that young men or young women commit suicide in a bombing in order to get people to take notice of their plight. You discover an emotionally disturbed son who murders his mother, a highly respected local educator, and then kills himself as well. You find cultural icons accused of rape and spousal abuse and murder and drug abuse. There seems to be no question that we are a people who need saving. William Golding's classic novel, The Lord of the Flies, gives a very chilling and believable account of a group of prim and proper British schoolboys who are marooned on a desert island. Within a short time, these boys are morphed into savage and murderous monsters. And when they're finally rescued by a British naval cruiser, the story closes with an ironic question. But who will rescue the adult and his cruiser? The sin that infects these rescued savage boys also infects the whole world, the world of adults. It's a congenital disease shared by the whole human race. Even the rescuers need rescue. That's why the Bible insists that the solution needs to come from the outside, that we cannot save ourselves. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, we all lived by our, our, our wicked passions and with the whole human race, we were by nature children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of his great love, has made us who were dead in our trespasses and sins alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. And so the book of Ephesians declares that God has sent us a rescuer from the outside 
Jesus Christ has come to address the human dilemma and deliver us from the ravages of sin, but also to deliver us from our self-imposed alienation from God and from one another. German philosopher Schopenhauer compared the human race to a bunch of porcupines huddling together on a cold winter night. He said, the colder it gets outside, the more we huddle together for warmth. But the closer we get to one another, the more we hurt each other with our sharp quills. And in the lonely night of Earth's winter, eventually we begin to drift apart and wander on our own until we finally freeze to death in our loneliness. The effect of God's salvation in Jesus Christ is not merely to restore us to God and then take us to heaven when we die. For Paul, our salvation embraces the wholeness of our humanity and it addresses this most foundational human problem of our alienation from one another. To be saved, then, is to be in the painful process of having our quills removed by God. And the effect of this operation is that we're being renewed in our capacity to seek peaceful relationship with other people. And ultimately, we're drawn into the community of these dequilled porcupines, the church. And the church is the place where God is showing off for the world this new and restored humanity. Not perfect, but in the process of being made holy. This is God's sign to the world that salvation is possible because this group of people is united together when there is no human explanation for why they would gather. Jews and Gentiles gather together as brothers and sisters. Rich and poor share bread together. God doesn't take away our diversity. He takes away our hostility. And in the, in the process, he makes us new people. We're porcupines learning to huddle together without hurting each other. Fyodor Dostoevsky's novel, Crime and Punishment, tells the story of a convicted axe murderer, Rasholnikov, who is sent off to prison camp. During his time of incarceration, however, he's sustained. He's given hope by the unconditional love of Sonia, a prostitute. She begins to read to him the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, from the Gospel of John. And this begins to give him hope that God could resurrect even his own dead soul. And the last words of Crime and Punishment read this way. Roshonikov did not, did not yet know this new life, that it would cost him great striving, great suffering. But this is the beginning of a new story, the story of the gradual renewal of a man, the story of his gradual regeneration, of his passing from one world to another, of his initiation into a new, unknown life. For the Apostle Paul, this is the point of the gospel. This is why we're saved. Not merely to save our own necks, 
but so that we can become gradually renewed and regenerated through the work of the Spirit, through the suffering love of Jesus Christ, so that we can finally become a new people. And this is God's hope for the whole human race. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us something very shocking. That God's hope of redemption for the human race, he intends to accomplish through you and me, through the church. I had a student a few years ago who introduced himself by saying, I believe in the Christianity of Jesus, but not the Christianity of the church. Increasingly, we hear people who say they want religion, but not the church. The church is an embarrassment, an encumbrance that we would wish to be rid of. And when we look at our 2,000 years of history as the church, it's easy to focus on our failures, to see the evils committed by the church, and to reject it out of hand. And some of us are inclined to say with that student, I want Jesus, but I don't want the church. But Paul wants us to remember that the church is Christ's body. When we celebrate Reformation Sunday, it's really something of a mixed blessing. On the one hand, Reformation reminds us of the possibility that the church can be renewed and restored. On the other hand, it reminds us that the body of Christ has been tragically fragmented and splintered. We live in a divided church that brings great grief to God. And sometimes we evangelicals act as if the motivation of Luther in nailing those 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door on October 31st, 1517, that his motivation was to say, I've had enough of the church. I'm going to take my toys and go home. When things don't go your way, you go off and you start your own church. But that is not the motivation of Luther and the Reformers. If you read them carefully, they agonize over the divisions in the body of Christ. They long to see the church of Christ restored to unity. And the Apostle Paul, for the Apostle Paul, that unity is not incidental to the cause of the gospel. It is not a secondary part of our message. In fact, it's not even incidental to the very nature of God. The way we live together as Christians has everything to do with our salvation and with the salvation of the world. Listen to Paul. Therefore, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God, not just pastors and missionaries, but all of us have been called by God. Be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for one another's faults because of your love. Always keep yourselves united in the Holy Spirit and bind yourselves together with peace. Christian unity is not something we invent. It's a gift from God. We're not capable of producing it, no matter what programs we implement. Christian unity is a work of God, bringing people together who under normal circumstances would never come together. We don't create Christian unity, but we can destroy it. We can lose it. 
And Paul is telling us that we have a responsibility as people who are called by God to protect and preserve our unity in Jesus Christ. Christian unity doesn't mean that we don't have our differences. This is not a cookie-cutter religion. We can, we can disagree about how much water to use in baptism. We can disagree about the order of events at the second coming. We can disagree about politics and culture. But if we're followers of Jesus Christ, then in spite of our differences and our disagreements, we belong to the same family. The disagreement between Lutherans and Baptists about infant baptism is a household squabble. The difference between Catholics and Protestants about the meaning of communion is a family disagreement. Even after those differences, Paul would say, we are all one body, for we share the same spirit, and we have all been called to the same glorious future. There is only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and there is only one God, the Father of us all, who is over us all and in us all and living through us all. For the Apostle Paul, our unity is not derived from the fact that we have decided to agree with one another at every single point of our theology. Our unity is not because we've checked our brains at the door of the church. Our unity is not even because we see eye to eye about how to practice the Christian life. Our unity derives from the fact that the one Father creates one family that the one Lord Jesus Christ is the heart and soul of our faith and our hope and our one baptism, and that the one Spirit has immersed us into a community of people who are now our family. I want you to notice in this passage in Ephesians chapter 4 how the Apostle Paul has transformed the Jewish Shema from Deuteronomy 6 into something the, the Shema is something that a Jew would recite every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. This confession was the foundation of the Jewish faith, and it was the foundation of their unity because they worshipped one and the same God. But that confession has been expanded by Paul, not only to confess one God, which is the basis for our unity, but also to confess one God who is unveiled as Father, Son, and Spirit, which is the basis for our unity and diversity. Paul says we are all one body, for we share the same Spirit. There is only one Lord Jesus Christ, exemplified in one faith, one baptism, and there is only one God and Father who is over us all and living through us all. This Trinitarian formula by Paul is not an accident. Our shape as a community is patterned after the shape of the Trinity. In 1 Corinthians, Paul suggests that if anybody destroys the church, they're actually attacking Jesus Christ himself. And here in Ephesians, you have the same idea, expanded by implication. When someone attacks the unity of the church... They're attacking the very nature of God. I recall a woman in my previous pastorate 
who would proudly proclaim to everyone she met, my spiritual gift is splitting churches. She bragged that she had single-handedly split four churches and implied that she was not beyond doing so again if she saw fit. I was a young pastor then, and I was pretty intimidated by her. I approached this woman with fear and trembling. But as I grow in my understanding of the Scripture's view of the church, of God's view of the church, the more I understand that that attitude is nothing less than demonic. There's nothing spiritual about it at all. And as long as God sees fit to keep me as pastor and give me breath, I will not tolerate that kind of attitude in Christ's church. Ultimately, and more importantly, God will not tolerate that kind of attitude in his church. Corinthians gives a stern warning. Whoever destroys God's temple, God will destroy them. So often we have developed such a consumer attitude toward the church that we think it's our job to either make the church perfect by sheer force of will or if it fails to conform to our expectations, we either destroy it or we walk away. Because the market of churches is so large and varied, we often spend our lives searching for the perfect church instead of settling into the body of Christ and using our gifts for the benefit of the body, we shop and shop and shop. I want to tell you this morning that the perfect church is a myth. It doesn't exist. We're pretty darn close. (laughs) But there are flaws. They're not obvious ones. What you need is not a perfect church. What you need is a faithful church a church that relies on the Spirit of God rather than on technique to fulfill the mission of God in the world. Bill Benton tells the story of a small church that had outgrown its building and decided to build a new church. They didn't want to burden the pastor with the details, so they told him that the building committee would handle everything. Isn't that a great idea? (laughs) They wanted to build the perfect church. They polled everyone, got their ideas, and finally when the building was complete, the pastor was invited to tour the building before the first service. The deacon met him at the door and announced, we've thought of everything. We think we've constructed the perfect church. The pastor was skeptical, but when he went through the church, he realized that they really seemed to have thought of everything. For example, when a child got antsy during church, the the pew would pop out crayons and a coloring book. Someone got sleepy during the service, the pew would dispense a hot cup of coffee. For example, the, the deacon said, since people always fill in the last rows of the church first, we had a special feature installed. Whenever the last row of pews got filled, another pew would pop up behind it and move that pew forward. And that would happen until the new sanctuary was filled. The pastor was impressed. As the service began, the sanctuary began to fill up. Pews kept popping up. People kept moving forward. And he was thrilled to stand and preach in his new pulpit 
to this filled congregation. With all these conveniences, he thought it wouldn't hurt to preach an extra-long sermon. Well, the preacher was getting on a roll about 12 o'clock, and suddenly the church bells began to ring, and slowly the pulpit and preacher began to sink slowly into the floor. (laughs) They had thought of everything. There is no perfect church. Church history gives ample testimony to that fact. When you read the book of Acts, you don't see a perfect church. What you see is a church unified around Jesus Christ, learning together, making mistakes, but trying to unwrap the Spirit's gifts for the benefit of the body. Paul tells us that when Jesus ascended to the Father, he didn't abandon the church. Instead, he poured out the Holy Spirit on the church, giving his ministry gifts to the entire body. Teaching, healing, mercy, these are all shared with the entire body of Christ distributed through the whole church so that the ministry of Jesus Christ continues through the church body. Ephesians chapter 4 describes the ascension of Jesus with the image of a conquering ruler. In the ancient world, a victorious hero would return to the capital city and they would throw a huge ticker tape parade for him. And as a sign of his victory, the parade would display all the spoils of war taken from the enemy. And then at the back of the procession in chains, all the prisoners of war would be lined up for public humiliation and display. Eventually, these captives would be given as gifts to prominent people in the city. Paul uses that image to describe the church. When Jesus ascended on high, he said he led captives in his train and he distributed gifts to people. The result being that in the church, none of us is self-sufficient. If we want access to Jesus, that comes through the gifts given in his body. We need the gifts of the prophets and apostles. We need to to, uh, listen attentively to the words of, of the prophets and apostles. We need the gifts of evangelists who bring us to faith. We need the gifts of pastor teachers who nurture and sustain us in faithfulness. The fact is we need every gift that God has seen fit to give to his church if we're going to be a healthy, growing church. This means gifts that come from other parts of Christ's body. Gifts that come from other denominations. The Lutherans and the Orthodox, the Catholic and the Pentecostal, they have gifts of the Spirit, ministry gifts of Jesus that we all need to share. Trinity Church is committed to being a healthier church because we're willing to be cross-pollinated from other traditions. We want to graciously receive and use whatever gifts God wants us to have. In a nutshell, Paul teaches that we're given gifts by Jesus so that we can learn to depend upon each other as the body of Christ. 
but we're also compelled not simply to hoard those gifts, not simply keep them to ourselves, but to share them with one another so that the whole church can grow. I know a church in Grand Rapids that has several thousand members and is growing rapidly. And in order to keep up with the ministry demands, they're always hiring new people for their pastoral staff. Whenever some need arrives, arises, they simply hire a new minister, a minister of publications and communication, a minister of nursery programming, pastor of pyrotechnics, and so on. Everyone, every need in the community is met by hiring some professional staff member. At last count, they had some 47 ministers on staff. Now, that's a lot of ministers. And as you might suspect, a great deal can be accomplished with a staff like that. This morning, I'd like to ask you to use your imagination a bit to envision something even larger. Not a larger church, but imagine for a moment a church with a ministry staff of 140 people. 140 ministers, each with distinct spiritual gifts, all devoted to the same task, unified for the purpose of advancing God's kingdom and spreading abroad the love of Christ. Imagine for a moment what kind of impact a ministry team of 140 people would have in Livonia on the Detroit metro area. I think you know where I'm going with this. The New Testament idea is not is that by nature of our conversion, by nature of our conversion, each one of us has been called to ministry. Only some of us get paid. In our baptism, every one of us has been ordained as a priest. The Holy Spirit has given some share of the ministry gifts of Jesus to every one of us gathered here. Every believing person in this community has something that belongs to the body. In short, the church, this church, is 140 ministers called by God for the same purpose. Paul says, God has given each one of us a special gift according to the generosity of Christ. Under his direction, the whole body is fitted together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. This is God's vision for the church This is God's plan for the salvation of the world. Listen to the words of Peter. Each one of you has received a special gift. So behave like good stewards, caretakers of the various gifts God has entrusted to you by putting these gifts to to the service of others. That is why we are saved. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.